Here's Pastor Steve Converse to begin today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the Philharmonic New York Orchestra, he once was asked this question. He said, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And without hesitation, here's what he replied. He said, the second fiddle. He said, I can get me a first violinist, but to find somebody who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a real problem. He went on, he says, if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. And you know what? Sometimes God calls us to play second fiddle. And when we do it, we shouldn't do it with a griping, you know, I wish I was playing the first fiddle, first violin. I was in the first seat. No, we should say, hey, God, praise God, you're using me. We should be marveled that he's using any of us in any capacity because it's only by his grace. It's only by his mercy. And that's what we need to stay focused on. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. Greetings in Christ, and welcome to today's broadcast, continuing with our series, Keys to Spiritual Unity. One of those big keys, as we'll see today, is that of humility. How can we be unified if we're all seeking our own interests? And that's the question we answer today. We begin in Galatians chapter 5. Join us there. For today's broadcast of Graceful Truth Now from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, once again, here's Pastor Steve Converse. You look at at Galatians 5.19, I think we read this last week, he's talking here about walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh, and verse 19 he says, hey, you want to know? You want to know whether you're in the flesh or in the spirit? Well, here, you know, he's just real bold. And he says, here, put your, try this on. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, you can't really hide them. They're very basic, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. And you may be sitting there pretty pious right about now saying, oh, that doesn't cover me. I'm doing pretty good. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred. Well, I'm still doing pretty good. Contentions, jealousy. Oh, that one hurts a little bit. Outburst of wrath. Ouch. Selfish ambitions. Oh. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, you know what? Just in case I haven't listed your little sin, anything like any of these belongs right here in this list. I just don't, Paul's just saying, you know what, I'm not going to go on and on and on. So he just puts in there, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past. And those who practice such things, what's it say? Pretty, pretty bold statement, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. He doesn't say, well, you know, you can, might be able to do these and, and practice them. And he's talking about not falling in one of these areas, because we all fall maybe in one of these areas at a certain time. But practice has the idea, this is your life. This is your lifestyle. And you're saying, hey, you know what? I don't care if I'm jealous. That's who I am. I've tried that sometimes, not in the area of jealousy, but in some of the other areas here with my own wife. You know, that's how God created me. Doesn't work. Oh, he says, yeah, that's right, but that's not who God wants you to be. We're all created in the image of God, but because of the, the sin that we're born with, everything's kind of messed up. So he wants us to come to him on a daily basis and not practice these things. But then he says the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is what? Joy, love, peace, long-suffering, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We shouldn't do that. Paul's very clear there. And selfishness has a way of poisoning every other work that could be done. It just has a way of, you might have one area of your life, you're selfish, selfish, where everything else is, is kind of hindered as a result of that. And we need to be aware of that and take care of it. And that's why Paul in the book of Philippians points out, first of all, you know what? Don't do anything out of selfishness, out of selfish ambition. It's really a way of, of pointing out hypocrisy. Because some people think it's okay to be selfish in certain areas of their lives. And then it causes discord, it causes division, and people are focused on their agenda rather than the agenda of Christ. It becomes a very narrow, narrow mindset, and it hurts the body of Christ. That's what James 3.16 says. He says, Where, wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exists, he says there's disorder in every evil thing. Period. So let's move on from selfish ambition. Let's start right there and, and surrender our lives to God and say, you know what, help me deal with this. Because we all have it to some degree. We're all selfish in some way. And it ought not be that way. Well, the second attitude, he says, that we shouldn't have is not just selfish ambition. He says, or conceit. And he, some translations say empty conceit. And it's really translating a compound Greek word. And it appears only here in the New Testament, which is kind of interesting. And it's formed by by the adjective and a noun, which means empty glory. That's the idea. Or vainglory, as the King James renders it. And it refers to a highly exaggerated view of yourself. And it's really nothing. There's nothing there, but for some reason you think there is. It's like looking at a glass that's empty and say, wow, it's full. That doesn't make sense. It's like looking at yourself and say, boy, aren't I something? Look at me and puff your chest out and flex your arms. And God says, you're nothing. There's nothing there. It's empty. If that's all you're focusing on, there's emptiness there. Selfish ambition pursues personal goals, but really empty conceit, it, it deals more with pursuing personal glory and acclaim. I mean, it's people that thrive for attention. Selfish ambition refers more to personal accomplishments, but, but empty conceit refers more to an overinflated self-image, you might say. You ever met anybody like that? They just think, you know what? They're always right no matter what. And you know what? There's just no talking to them. And the only unity that they ever, they ever see in their life is when someone agrees with them. Then they'll embrace that person. But boy, if you don't agree, well, then forget it. Let's just say this. You know, no one has a corner on this truth. Do you understand that? We all have the same Bible. It's the Word of God. We believe that wholeheartedly. But you know what? There are some things within the body of Christ that I would definitely teach a certain way. I would desire to represent the Word of God to the best of my ability. But you know what? There's people that would not necessarily agree with the viewpoint that I would take. And you know what? That's okay. I mean, who am I? You know? I mean, that's okay. Now, if it's something that, well, Jesus isn't God, then we need to sit down and talk. Okay? And we need to go to Scripture. And, and see, and that's the, that's the focal point. It's scripture. It's not my ideas. It's not my, you know, vain thoughts. And the whole thing, oh, maybe I can think, figure this out or figure that out. You know, there's a lot of things in the Word of God that I don't have the slightest idea. And I, I, I don't even 
can't begin to comprehend. There's a lot of doctrinal issues that just blow my mind when you look at them. And the more you look at them, you think you finally got it figured out. And then, you know, you read another verse and you're just going, well, how does that fit into this? See, we want everything nice and neat and packaged so we can take our God and put him in this little box and say, here. And you know what? God's not that way. God's a lot bigger than our little boxes. And he says himself, my ways are not your ways. So stop trying to figure my ways out. That's kind of the idea. You know, it's a walk of faith. I heard, uh, I don't know if you saw, they had some pastors on uh, Larry King the other night. And uh, Greg Laurie had a great line. I think it was Greg Laurie. Um, he was talking about faith and different things with Larry King. And Larry King said, well, you know, isn't that a crutch? You know, and Greg Laurie says, hey, Larry, you know what? I need more than a crutch. I need a hospital. And you know what? That is so true. We're all broken. It's just that some of us don't know we're broken. And Christ is saying, hey, you know what? I'm here. I'm your hospital. I'm, I'm ready to fix you up and bandage you up and put you back together the way I created you to be. But you have to come to me. You have to come to me in, in a way that puts your selfishness and puts your empty conceit. Stop looking at yourself. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. That's the, that's the real deal here. And so many times, even when you're sharing Christ with somebody, all of a sudden they begin to, you know, tell you, oh, well, I'm a good person. I, you know, it's not about them. You know, if you think you're God, then maybe, you know, take it up with him. But unless you, you think you're God, then, then really we have something to talk about. Because the Bible says clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's nobody ever anywhere that can attain to God's glory. Lucifer tried and look at what happened to him. And every day that's a battle that rages in our heart, to be honest. We, we want our way. We want, you know, yeah, we know what God says to do, but, you know, I think it might be better to work it out this way. We just need to be submissive to him and come to him and say, hey, you know what? I'm done with this selfish attitude. I'm done with thinking more of myself than really what's there. And Christ, I want you to be exalted in my life. That's the key. That's the key. See, the ancient Greeks, they didn't admire humility. They looked at it as a sign of weakness. So you can only imagine when Christ comes on the scene, and he comes across not as this ruler with an iron sword, but, you know, a very humble and meek individual. What they thought of that. And even today, our world, you know, to be humble or to be a, a person that acts in humility, oh, you're weak. We're going to get to the top that way. You've got to blow your own horn. You've got to tell people, you know, all this stuff. I remember going to an interview one time for the district attorney's office, sitting in there, and, and they said, you know, well, why should we hire you? I said, I don't know. I got a degree in criminology. I said, I have no experience at all whatsoever in this field. And it's probably a gamble on your part to hire. I know I'm a hard worker. I know I'm uh, try to learn, but I, I can't point to anything within myself. And, you know, the guy said, you know, you're probably the first person that ever said that. Usually it's like you get this list of litany of things, or oh, I've done this and I've done that and blah, 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 blah. And even as pastors sometimes, what's your credentials? What's this? What's that? You know, my credentials are right here. All I want to do is teach God's word, hopefully in an effective way, and see him do the work in people's lives. It's not about me. It's not about this church. It's not about anything like that. It's about Christ. And I think if we keep that mindset, then, then we're going to be okay. The third means there, he points out here in verse uh, three and four, they're building on each other. First, selfishness, then conceit. And then he says, in lowliness of mind, in lowliness of mind or humility of mind. And it's the very opposite of the selfishness and empty conceit that he just got done talking about. It's corrective of the, the selfishness and the conceit. Well, what's the opposite of that? Lowliness of mind or humility of mind. And really, humility of mind is kind of the bedrock of Christian character in general. 
and it's a basis for spiritual unity. There was a definition by John Newton of humility, and he says this, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet somebody I had not thought was going to make it. Secondly, to miss somebody that I expected to be there. And third, and the greatest wonder of all, he says, is to find myself there. That's so true. It's not coincidental that the first and foundational beatitude refers to what? Those who are poor in spirit. That means being humble in your mind. It literally means lowliness of mind. In Acts 20, 19, and Ephesians 4, 2, it's rendered humility. And in secular Greek literature, this, this adjective lowly was used exclusively in a kind of a, a derisive way, mostly of the, the, the commonality of a slave. They didn't look at it as something positive. It was considered base, common, unfit, having little value. In Proverbs 11:12, Solomon warns, when pride comes, what? Then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. And in 16:19, he later declares in Proverbs, it is better to be humble in spirit than the lowly, with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Zechariah 9.9, describing the coming messianic king, says, just and endowed with salvation, humble, speaking of Christ, and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And that prophecy, Matthew specifically applies to Jesus in his triumphant entry, yet humble, his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Moses, Numbers 12.3 says, was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. David said, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar, Psalm 138.6. In Psalm 37.11, he wrote, the humble will inherit the land. In Matthew 5.5, 5, Jesus said, blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus described himself as gentle and humble in heart. In Matthew 11:29, in Acts 20 verses 18 to 19, it says that Paul could testify honestly of himself to the elders from Ephesus. And he says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility. And in 1 Peter 5 verses 5 and 6, three times here Peter calls for humility. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. See, that's the key, beloved. Sometimes we want to exalt ourselves and God's saying, no, it's not time yet. You know, it's not the proper time. I saw a football game one time and at the end of the first quarter, this team wasn't doing too good. And at the end of the first quarter, they blew the whistle and the quarterback started to run toward the tunnel. I mean, this poor guy thought it was halftime, you know? And it was just, it was funny, you know, it wasn't the right time to run to the tunnel into the locker room, come back. You still got some more to do. And see, genuine humility involves believers not thinking too highly of themselves. And it requires that we regard one another as more important than ourselves. That word regard is a verb, and it means more than just having an opinion. First to a kind of a, a carefully thought out conclusion based on truth. It doesn't mean to pretend that others are more important than you. That's not what he's talking about. But actually to believe that others are more important than you. We all got a lot of work there, huh? We can all say, oh, bless you, brother. Bless you, sister. You know, yes. Oh, can I open the door for you? You know, and inside you're going, they should be opening the door for me. You know, what's this about? I mean, you know, that's how we think of it. 
And see, sometimes, you know what? This is talking about a legitimate belief that others are actually more important. That word more important comes from a, a Greek word that really the English word hyper is taken from. In other words, it intensifies and it elevates what's in view here. And so that it means to excel, to suppress, to be superior to. And in Romans, Paul uses this word in speaking of the government, the supreme authorities to which every person is in subjection to in Romans 13. And Peter uses a word over in 1 Peter 2.13. He says, submit themselves to a king as the one in authority. In other words, being supreme. Over in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul uses this word. He says, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Talking about the value of knowing Christ. It's the same word that he uses there. See, I think that the best way to approach this is, it may seem unrealistic, it may seem impossible, but you know what? We need to consider our own sins. We need to stop and look at our own lives. You know what? You know more about what's in your heart than anybody else. You and God, that's it. And I think when we recognize that sinfulness that's there, we should really, that should exclude any boastful pride or, or you know, self-exaltation. Because we all have sinned to some degree in certain areas. And it's a humble person that would look at themselves and say, hey, you know what? I may be able to put on a good show, but you know what? I deal with sinful things like everybody else. I mean, think about it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul viewed himself. This is what he said of himself. The least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says, the very least of all saints. That's what he referred himself to. And in 1 Timothy 1, 15, even the foremost of all sinners. I mean, how can we think more highly than we ought to about ourselves? It's sin. It's wrong. And Paul says, stop it. Fourth thing he points out there is lowliness of mind. And then he says a way of promoting spiritual unity. It's a negative admonition here. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Look out for means to observe something. It has the idea of giving close attention, special consideration to something. And I think that that's what he's calling us to do. Paul carefully disciplined his body, as we know, because he, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that he wanted to avoid becoming its slave, so he made his body a uh, slave to him. He didn't want to disqualify himself from some form of, of ministry. He experienced labor, hardship, many sleepless nights. The Word of God tells us, 2 Corinthians 11.27, hunger, thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. But you know what? He never purposely starved himself or caused any self-inflicted harm to his body. Je during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus never practiced or did he approve of some form of aesthetic self-denial. He ate regularly. He slept regularly. He took care of his body. He expected his followers to do the same. Now, obviously, there's a place for biblical fasting. That's clear in, in Scripture. But it's not to be equated with some harsh, self-destructive system. And with all that said, we need to still esteem others better than ourselves. We need to look out for the interests of others. That's clearly what he says here. So it doesn't mean that you just kind of write yourself off and and let yourself go to pot. You know, I'm concerned with others. It doesn't matter about me. You know, you can't be concerned with others, beloved, if you're not 
in God's word, being fed yourself. If you're not having a regular time in prayer and devotion to God and you're not building, you know, allowing God to build you up through his word spiritually, how are you going to be any use to anybody? That has to come first. It's like I'd be a pastor getting up and saying, well, you know, this isn't for me. This is all for you guys. But let's just go at it and see what happens here. You know, no, you have to do preparation. You have studying. God has to speak to your heart. He does a work in your heart first through his word. And so Paul here says, don't, don't allow this, this idea that, you know, through all this selfishness and empty conceit, don't allow that to turn into esteeming yourself as better than somebody else. And the last thing there that really promotes spiritual unity, it's a positive side. He says, let each of you look out for the interests of others. So you, you not only look out for your own interests, but you look out for the interests of others. What does that look like? Uh, especially those who are together in the body of Christ. I mean, we should, we should understand that, hey, you know, at times people have needs, people have uh, you know, concerns, and we need to come together as the body of Christ and minister. And, and you know what? I'm thankful that we're in a church that, that practices that. A lot of times, you know, I hear from somebody else that don't contact me directly, but somebody else, oh, yeah, you know, we went to visit so-and-so because, you know, they're sick. Did you know they're sick? No, I didn't. How did you know they're sick? Oh, well, you know, and I've already been over there and brought them soup. Whatever it is, that's, that's an encouraging thing because the body is ministering to the body. They're not sitting back saying, okay, well, we'll wait for somebody else to do it. Galatians 6, 2, the way this fleshes itself out, you might say, the way it works its way out is is. Very clearly, it says, bear one another's burdens and therefore, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And I think that that's what we should be doing as a body. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the Philharmonic New York Orchestra, he once was asked this question. He said, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And without hesitation, here's what he replied. He said, the second fiddle. He said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find somebody who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a real problem. And you know what? He went on, he says, if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. And you know what? Sometimes God calls us to play second fiddle. And when we do it, we shouldn't do it with a griping, you know, I wish I was playing the first fiddle, first violin. I was in the first seat. No, we should say, hey, God, praise God, you're using me. We should be marveled that he's using any of us in any capacity. Because it's only by His grace. It's only by His mercy. And that's what we need to stay focused on. Let's close in a word of prayer. And, but Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You that You call us not to build ourselves up, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but Lord, that our focus should not be on ourselves in the first place. It should be on You. And Father, I pray that as a church, our focus would be on You, on Your Word, on exalting Christ in this community. Lord, help us not to get sidetracked. Help us not to wonder at times, well, God, maybe, maybe we should do something else here. Maybe just teaching the Bible week after week is, is not doing it. But Lord, we can't listen to that. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And Father, we thank you that your word is true. Father, we thank you that we don't have to come up with some kind of entertainment to entertain people. Lord, we want to see people edified in their spirit. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see families restored marriages restored. Father, and, and that can only happen by your spirit doing a work in individual hearts. But Father, you do choose to use us along the way. And Lord, I pray that we would be instruments yielded in your hand that could be used for your glory, not our own. 
spiritual unity. That's been the subject of today's broadcast here on this edition of Graceful Truth, the weekly radio program originating from the pulpit teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church, located in Redwood City, revealing God's grace through God's truth. If you would like to review today's program, we have a couple of ways that you can do so. First, you can visit our website and take advantage of the free download there in MP3 form. Simply head on over to our website. You can find us on the web at gracefultruth.org. That's gracefultruth.org. And you'll be able to download today's message there as well. Or give us a call. We'll get a CD out to you if you wish. 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you are currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up through grade 5. If you would like to encourage us here at the Graceful Truth Program, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Again, that phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us again on the web at gracefultruth.org. And if you would like directions to our church for worship, you can either visit gracefultruth.org for the map and the details, directions, or again, call 650-366-9923. As always, your letters are greatly appreciated as well. Prayer requests, comments about the broadcast, questions, feel free to either call us Drop us an email at our website or, again, write to us at 2225 Euclid, Redwood City, California. The zip code is 94061. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. (music) 